Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. What's up, guys? Before we get into today's episode, which I'm very excited about, I just got to do a quick plug for our uh, event down in Palm Beach, Permissionless. It's happening May 17th through the 19th. Super, super excited about this. We've got a great lineup. Chris Dixon, Do Kwan, uh, Kevin Awaki, the founder of GetCoin, whole bunch of really, really interesting folks that I'm excited to have you hear from. Also, we just launched uh, the inaugural BlockWorks NFTs. Permies. These things are sick. They were designed by 3D print guy who used to work at Pixar. Really, really cute. I already feel very attached to mine. Uh, head over to our website. You can get more information and mint your own. If you get a Permi, you get all these very cool, uh, you know, you're like a VIP at the event. It's a lifetime ticket for permissionless going forward and a whole bunch of other really cool stuff. So check it out. Head to our website. See y'all down there. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I am joined, as always, by my indubitable co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? I, I'm doing great, except I'm a little tired. I'm still on mountain time. I was out mm. skiing with, with Will for, for spring break. And uh, so you got to deal with the ski stubble uh, <laughs> today. And uh, I'm, I'm going to do the reveal. And, and this is a crazy one. So mm. I, I, I'm wearing the Carolina, you know, North Carolina mm. socks today because it's a Love big them. weekend, big weekend. Uh, first time Duke and UNC meeting in the NCAA Final Four. Uh, you obviously know who I root for. Uh, but the real thing is, Michael, I just couldn't put on Bitcoin socks today mm. since I sold all my Bitcoin. I, I just, I you did just, not. I lost, I, I changed, I just had a change of heart. I just, I just couldn't do it. I, April I just, Fools, baby! Yeah. I forgot. Oh shit! It's my dad's birthday today. I, this is a good reminder. I got to give him a call. All right, April Fools! I almost I, got you. I almost you did. got you. Did you see the fear in my eyes? I was like, Mark, no, <laughs> man, please say it ain't so. Um, uh, all right, happy April Fools, everyone! Uh, happy birthday, Dad! I'll give you a call later. Um, all right. That was good, though. That was very good. You had me there for a second. Um, maybe the market is giving us a little April Fools as well because uh, we've got a yield curve inversion, but perhaps it is just psyching us out. Uh, that is my absolutely horrendous non sequitur uh, into our, our first topic. No, that, was uh, good, that was a good non sequitur. That wasn't horrendous. Okay, I'll give us yeah. some credit there. All right, here, let's see if I can share my screen. Um, so we're looking here at uh, the spread between the 10-year and the two-year. It briefly dipped into uh, negative territory, which means we have officially got a an inverted yield curve. Um, before we get into that, Mark, can you just describe, uh, for those who might not be familiar, right? Folks have probably heard a lot about this, like, oh, the, kind of the boogeyman, the, you know, when the yield curve inverts, that means we've got a recession coming up. Why do people focus um, on this, right? Why do people pay attention to the yield curve inverting and what has that kind of historically meant? Yeah. So if you think about a yield curve, so on the left-hand side, it's it's the short end. And on the right-hand side, it's the long end. So shortest duration treasuries, longest duration treasuries. And in a normal functioning world, uh, the curve is upward sloping, like mm -hmm. a security market line, right? You, you're, you're going longer out in duration. You have to get compensated for that risk. So you have higher rates. Well, what happens in when, when the economy gets super hot, uh, the Fed historically has raised rates on the short end and pushed the short end up. So think about, you know, an upward sloping line. Think about the left hand side getting pushed up and you get to flat. And because the long end starts to actually not rise or even fall 
if if it believes that the economy is going to slow down in response to the higher rates. So what happens with a yield curve inversion is that short end pushes up, it gets flat with the long end and eventually, you know, tilts the other way, inverts. And, uh, you know, what, like the guys I saw out in Colorado doing the inversions off the, the ski jumps, I did not do that. Uh, but the the thing that I, I think is different this time, I, I hate those that phrase, right? It's, it's never different this time. But what is different is normally the reason a yield curve inverts is because that long end of the curve is signaling economic slowdown in response to the the higher rates. This time, that that ain't it at all, right? Mm. The, the the long end has been pinned right around two percent for a long time. Think about two percent interest rates are not a sign of economic strength. They're a sign of economic weakness. And other than the little blip in you know growth, quote unquote. Uh, post-COVID lockdown, which was just illusion, right? If you if you lay everybody off, you put them in their house, and then they go back to work, you didn't create a new job. You didn't create economic growth. That's the broken window fallacy. I break the window. I don't count that. And then I, I count the rebuilding. Or hurricanes, right? Hurricane wipes out Louisiana, where the Final Four is this weekend, uh, during Katrina. They don't count that against GDP. But then all the rebuilding, that's positive GDP. Yeah. So I think it's... The problem we have now is the Fed, believe, people believe that the Fed actually is doing anything at the short end of the curve. The short end of the curve has been wrong for 13 years. It just, it, it was at zero interest rates, it was held down artificially to liquefy the banks. It should have been much higher. Short-term rates should equal nominal GDP growth. That hasn't been the case other than the last 10 years for the last, you know, for the last hundred plus years, that was the case. So that's a long answer to your question, but this is a really important concept in that interest rates, in theory, are the governor on economic activity. I believe sub 2%, it breaks. It just doesn't work. And the whole Fed model, how you justify higher uh, uh, stocks uh, based on low yields, just breaks down. Because just do the math, right? If, if rates are zero, are stocks worth infinity? Mm. The value divided by zero is, is infinity. So, of course, if you looked at the valuations of some of the companies out there, you would say, oh, yeah, that's what that's how it works. It's interesting. I mean, we've we've seen that that idea of like so that that kind of phony growth that you alluded to during COVID, right, which was kind of fueled by uh, monetary accommodation, fiscal accommodation. You know, you can look at a whole bunch of different charts and there's this extreme reversion going on right now. Right. Like the most obvious is when you look at kind of those pandemic darlings, you know, like the yeah. Zooms and the Pelotons and uh you know, whatever's of the world. I mean, they've done a complete retracement, right, of basically all yes. their gains. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, speaking about bonds specifically here, uh, Joseph Wang, uh, who hosted the show with my colleague Jack Farley, uh, Forward Guidance, um, has this kind of theory. So he was he was a trader at the Fed. He's kind of got this theory about a pre and post Great Financial Crisis world, and yep. how things have changed post Great Finan- uh, GFC. Where, you know, due to like a bunch of banking regulation, right? So Basel 2 and 3, and I can't really remember what they're called. But basically, the financial system said, hey, uh, banks, you were taking on way too much risk before. So we want you to buy safer assets, aka treasuries, right? And those treasuries tend to be longer dated, right? So that just means basically there's this structural bid at the longer end of the curve. 
And that also kind of keeps. I wish a- that that is such an elegant analysis and 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 perfect. And I just mm. wish it were true. Mm. Uh, I, I, the the part about the the reason for why the banks are buying the treasuries. Mm. Hmm. The banks are have this relentless bid on treasuries because it's free money. Mm. They borrow from the Fed at zero. Right, this is all part of the Ponzi. They borrow from the Fed at zero. They buy the treasuries because no one else will buy them. The Chinese won't buy them. The Russians won't buy them. And we have to issue so many treasuries because the government is out of control with their spending, running a you know three trillion dollar deficit. And it's just a Ponzi scheme. And we've talked about this, right? When you have too much debt, you got four options. You pay it back, you restructure it, you default on it, or you devalue it by debauching the currency. You can't pay it back, right? Even if you taxed 100% of the wealth, forget the income, all the wealth of all the billionaires in the United States, all of it wouldn't pay back one year of debt. Okay, so you can't pay it back. You can restructure it, but then someone's got to buy the restructured bonds. Nobody to buy. Chinese Mm. won't buy. Russians won't buy. Nobody will buy. Can't default on it because then you get kicked out of office. So you debauch it. And that's all that's happening. We are debauching the currency. We've talked about this in the past. We're not seeing inflation. We're not seeing demand pull inflation. We're not seeing normal supply demand. We're seeing massive currency debasement. Mm. Massive. And that's why assets like the one I didn't sell, Bitcoin, uh, are going <laughs> to continue to rise uh, as a perfect store of value. Mm. Let's talk about how, what's the relationship between uh, the yield curve and stocks, right? This graph's a little blurry, right? So, so bear with us here. But basically what we're looking at here is in previous periods where the yield curve has inverted how stocks have behaved. So we're looking at August of 1978, December of 1988, May of 1998. Jeez, <laughs> the years that ended in eight, it's not great. Uh, yeah. February of 2000 and December 2005. These are all yield curve inversions. And what it looks like is, actually, it seems like there's a period of time, you know, uh, 350, 400 trading days after where, where stocks don't react. But then there's a pretty consistent plunge, right, of anywhere from, uh, you know, yep. To 10% to, to all the way down to 30 or 40%. So, yep. you know, what's this, rela- just just almost from a first principles, why, why do stocks react, right, when the yield curve inverts? Well, because stocks are a leading indicator of economic activity. So, mm. so the inversion is a leading, leading indicator. So it, it doesn't, it's not like when the yield curve inverts, immediately you're in recession and immediately stocks crash. So what happens is the yield curve is basically the bond market participants telling you that something's amiss, that they don't believe that, or that they actually do believe that the the Fed tightening liquidity is going to cause stress in the market, and they start selling the the uh, or, or so they, they start moving into uh, longer duration assets, which pushes the yield down. So they're they're afraid. Uh, then the stock market doesn't really buy it because it doesn't see any slowing economic activity, doesn't see any GDP numbers. And so, but eventually, like you say, at some period of time, it's usually around nine-ish months later, it says, yep, yep, that was right. The mm. Fed did succeed in slowing down the economy. The the things are getting worse. So the market declines. And, and the depth of the decline is determined by how high the valuation was. So based on that measure, this decline could be a doozy. You know, actually, I'm looking at this, and uh, it looks like the performance. <laughs> you know, look, looking at this chart, stocks actually don't do that horrendously after you know post yield curve inversions. I right. mean, just well, looking at this for the first nine months, for sure. 
for the yeah. first nine months, it's it's really not that big a deal. In fact, you could even have some rise as people say, oh, look, the Fed's going to engineer a perfect soft land, <laughs> which they've never done. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. I've got I've got another question for you here. So, you know, when you talk about almost this like idea of flight to safety and investors, uh, you know, de-risking, taking risk off the table. One, one thing that's occurred to me is that even though we've seen this huge reversion in some of these Let's call it, some of them are meme stocks, right? But some of them are just kind of more high flying tech. Yeah. Uh, the yep. indices have not sustained quite so much damage, right? And I wonder if that's because people see big tech, right? So like the Apples and Googles and maybe not Facebook, but uh, you know Amazons of the world actually as a defensive play, right? So they actually no. make up Again, such a It's such an elegant answer. And I don't, I don't mm. mean to interrupt you because you were on a mm. roll, but... It, it, it's such an elegant answer. Mm. But again, it, I wish it were true. I, I wish that investors, in air quotes, were actually making that decision, that they were actually mm. actively making a decision. Oh, these are, these are safe. These are good. The, the, the growth is good. Hmm. It's passive. It's just mm. so much money has flowed into passive indices, into index funds. And um, it... Oh, my computer's trying to take over again. Um, that it, the, passive is dumb. And mm. I don't mean unintelligent. I mean rule-based. It's not allowed to think. So everybody's got a 401k, a 403b, and every two weeks, money gets taken out of your salary and it goes into the stock market. You don't think about it. It just happens. And you don't get to say, you know, I think Apple's really highly overvalued. I don't, I don't want to buy it. Nope, you get 5.6% of it. Irregardless, and that puts relentless pressure on those fang man stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and NVIDIA, and they are more than 100% of the gains of the market over the last couple of years. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad because when it, when it eventually does end, and it will end, as it always has, uh, you know, people talk about the, the central bank put. Right? They talked about the Greenspan put and the Greenspan would never allow the market to go down. And, and in 1999, when it started to go down because worried people were about Y2K, he pumped half a trillion dollars back when half a trillion dollars was a lot of money. Uh, now you got a m- multiple trillions. Uh, and everyone thought the market could never go down. And then from 2001 to 2002, it went down a lot, 58% mm. peak to trough. And then we had the Bernanke put because, you know, Ben, he was the man of the year and time man of the year. And he wrote this book and he was the savior and he saved us from, you know, the the crash. And yeah, not so much. China saved us. They printed four billion dollars, four trillion dollars and bailed the world out. But Mm. Bernanke put was supposed to, you know, never allow the market to go down. And the market went down 54 percent peak to trough. And then now it was the Yellen put. Now, Yellen did get out of Dodge before her put expired. Because remember, 85% of options expire worthless. Hmm. If you ever have the urge to buy an option, just stop and do the opposite. Like if you want to buy a call, just buy a put. If you want to buy a put, just buy a call. Because you'll be more often, you have 50-50 chance of being right. But if you actually do what you think you want to do, you'll have an 85% chance of being wrong. But... (laughs) Uh, which is crazy, right? Mm. But the problem is now we got the Powell put and everybody says Powell can never allow the market. The Fed does not control it. Mm. When market participants finally wake up out of their stupor 
And right now they're in a stupor. And and it's because of stupid ideas like indexing as a fad. I mean, the core of your portfolio should never be in an index fund. Think about it. An index fund is a momentum strategy. Right. It works great in monetary accommodation. But as soon as monetary accommodation slows, you have the absolute maximum exposure to exactly the wrong asset. 2000, maximum exposure to tech. 2008, maximum exposure to financials. Today, maximum exposure to tech. It doesn't end well for you, but people are going to do it. Well, I I just have uh, like a question about, you know, because right now, you know, when you look at a lot of these defensives and industrials or whatever, I mean, at one point, those would have kind of been considered tech stocks, right? I mean, most companies that become successful and, and ascend to the top of the market leverage technology in some way, shape or form, right? You don't yep. think about Exxon as a technology company, yep. but I mean, they were kind of at one point, right? Uh, I mean, figuring out how to do ENP is, yeah. is that's technology heavy. Isn't that the natural evolution though, of these big tech companies? Like they become at the beginning, they're these high flyers, they get valued on growth, et cetera, but then they transition to like the multiples on, okay, maybe not Amazon, but, but, uh, but Google there, it's pretty fair. Honestly, it's not, it's not a crazily valued stock. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, 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 it's not as crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But that's like, you know, that's like getting, you know, you're, you're swerving late at night, you're driving and a cop pulls you over and he says, you know, what's going on? Uh, you shouldn't be driving, right? You're drunk. He says, well, yeah, but I'm not as drunk as my friend passed out in the back. Someone had to drive, right? I mean, it's not as drunk as the guy passed out is not a good reason to take the wheel. You can, you can call an Uber. So, you know, being only a little crazy, uh, I'm just going to pull it up here real fast. So, you know, I, I use Apple all the time. Everybody says, well, Apple, it's such a bargain. You know, it's only 35 times. I'm like, well, okay, but here's the problem. Um, it's 35 times, uh, but its growth rate is low single digits. You don't pay 35 times for low single digits. No, no, it's 20%. I'm like, no, 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 that's earnings per share growth because you're issuing debt to buy back stock to financially engineer. But the actual net income growth year over year is is very small. Mm. Google, 25 times. Google's growth is not worthy of 25 times multiple. It's because... Like this morning, the reason I was late is, you know, made me update freaking Chrome, which was was a pain in the ass. Uh, and and have I changed? Have I gone to DuckDuckGo or something else? No. Mm. But uh, eventually I will find something that, you know, I I do work on. Now, the one thing I will grant you, and it is it is a really good point, Michael, that you make, is the, the world did change in that these are not normal companies. They're mm-hmm. networks and networks are different. Networks are very different. It's why digital assets are, are so valuable. Uh, networks are very, very different. They, they grow exponentially, not linearly. And, you know, Netflix or Amazon or Apple or Google, these, these things are networks and they have a different valuation because their profit margins are much higher. Their costs grow linearly, but their revenues grow exponentially. And, and that, that point, I will grant you that there is some belief that that will go on uh, to infinity. I, I actually believe in gravity. Uh, I wrote a long letter about this. You know, Newton was right 
that, that hmm. gravity does actually still function and that, that valuation does matter. And you can't suspend all disbelief like going to the movies uh, on these, these big tech big cap tech stocks but mm. but you're right there is there is a narrative there is some oh these these are these are like bonds yeah and you've heard it buy buy stocks for for income right buy the safe dividends like exxon mobile um problem with exxon mobile it's an industrial conglomerate half the time it makes money when prices of oil go up right the other half of its company loses money the refining loses money when oil prices go up. Flip-flop, oil prices go down. The refiners, the refining part, makes a lot of money. Distribution makes a lot of money. But their E&P loses money. So it's just an industrial conglomerate. It's been a great short for a long time. But now people think it's an oil stock again, which it's not. And it, it rallies because commodity prices are going up, which is the great segue to your next point. Yeah. Well, what I was going to ask you is, okay, so if gravity applies to uh, equity valuations, do you think it also applies to commodity prices? And looking at this <laughs> chart... I would say it looks like it does, right? So I'd be curious to get, I mean, this is a now historical spike. Uh, so we're looking at the yeah. CRB commodity index. This is a total return year over year percentage. And I think this is all time high, all time yeah. high. And you're, you're, for those of you who are listening along, I'm talking about, you know, we've got World War II on here, the New Deal, uh, you know, the Korean War, the Yom Kippur uh, oil shock, the oil embargo back in the 70s, 9-11. I mean, there were some historic spikes here, but... This is the yeah, biggest well, of them and the all. Charts, it's a total chart crime, too, because it, it it's so off the charts in terms mm. of literally that they had to do that little you know red line where it, the, the bar isn't actually as high as it should be relative to all these other spikes. Now, there's two things that are happening here. So one, commodity prices were at historic lows relative right. to paper asset prices. So... Um, that that's part of it, right? It's it's the the law of small numbers, right? When you fall ninety five percent, you got to be up got twenty it. fold just to get even. So that's yeah. part of it. But the real answer here, and this this is, I got in a little, I wouldn't call it an argument, but but uh, Greg Foss and I, uh, he commented on something I said about you know there there's no there's no inflation, uh, which seeing is is currency devaluation. So oh, it's the same thing. I'm like. Eh. And look, I love Greg, and he's he's way smarter than me. But it's just not right. I mean, that part is not right. Demand pull inflation is very different than currency debauchment. Mm. This big movement we're seeing in commodity prices is currency debasement. And we've talked about this, right? I mean, it, the, the craziness. My my parents were moving my parents up from south here uh, near Wilmington up to to Durham, right right next door. Uh, that town, the, you know, where the University of New Jersey at Durham is. Uh, I can't say the D word. And we put their house on the market. And they, they live in this this community down. It's like one of these golf course communities down at, on the coast of North Carolina. And it's, it's a nice house. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a perfectly nice house. Bidding war, sold for way above asking price. Just what's up with that? Dumb. What is it's, up it's, with that? This is happening in New York too. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's not. It's not even like oh, you know, twenty percent higher. It's yeah. like seventy percent higher for dumpy apartments, and it's like they, they, they just don't even exist. You you can't even get yeah. them. I don't it, that, understand. So 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 what? No. What 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 it is is it's it's 
people migration because of work from anywhere, right? You know, you and I are doing this in, in real time instead of be having to be together in a studio like the old days. Yeah. So that's so so now you got people say, well, I'm gonna I wanna I'm gonna work where I wanna live. And so places where people wanna live, there's there's a lot of demand for housing, there's just not enough supply. But the real reason is funny money. Yeah. Right? Houses don't grow. They don't appreciate. They don't get better. They mm. actually wear out. Like if you did nothing to your house over a 30, 40 year period, it would fall down, right? It mm. would just, I mean, not literally fall down, but it would, it would break. Things break. And so what's happening here is the currency, they printed 50%, five zero, half of all the dollars in the history of the Republic, 256 years in the last two years. Yeah. That is currency devaluation. And that is why commodity prices are spiking. It's why housing prices are spiking. It's why food prices are spiking. Now, there's other things, too, like supply disruptions in oil and gas because not enough people spent enough money to, to fix their wells because there was all the, the ESG nonsense of, oh, you know, we got to have immediate. Like this nonsense with the president saying, you know, the average family could save $80 a month in gasoline if they just buy a, a, a electric car. Yeah. And the extra thirty or forty thousand dollars that they have to spend to get that electric car to go to your cronies that are paying you huge amounts of money to to make that comment more than offsets the savings of gas, and you you end up net negative because remember cars don't appreciate Elon; they actually depreciate. They go to zero. Even Teslas, used Teslas, don't sell for more than new Teslas. I got news for you. They are cars. They wear out. They break. And God forbid, the first time people have to change those batteries, whoo, watch what happens to the value mm. of freaking Tesla cars. Mm. Um, you reminded me of something. I have a theory that I want to... I don't want to go on too long of a tangent here, but I've got yeah, a theory yeah. for you here. You know how... Um, so over periods of time, people preferred to people preferred to live in either rural or urban settings. So yep. like in the 1940s and 50s, right, there's like the white picket fence house in the U.S. And yep. everyone wanted to live in the suburbs and it was much more expensive and popular to live in the suburbs and cities. And it's been reversing for the last however many years. And now it's much more expensive and popular to live in urban settings. I yep. think this, what you were just alluding to with us being in different locations, uh, it's easier to work more remotely, et cetera, is going to push people out in general. And I think one of the things that's going to usher people out is uh, is actually the decisions that employers need to make over wages. Because you as an employer, right, you've always had this kind of option where do you, do you pay people more who live in New York versus yes. uh, Wisconsin? And um, people have generally done that, the COLA, right? Cost of living adjustment. We pay, it's more expensive to live in New York. So people who yeah. live in New York get higher salaries. But now there's this weird thing where everyone's been kind of working remotely and wages are kind of going up across the board and workers are basically like, I should just get paid depending on the merit of my work. It shouldn't really matter where where I live. Right. And employers can say, but that's not fair. You live in New York, blah, blah, blah. It just isn't going to matter. So I I think what's, what's eventually going to win is that idea that people get paid depending on the quality of their work. And you can see it in crypto. Imagine trying to, imagine trying to pay people differently in crypto based on the where they live. I mean, yep. that's, that's yep. just a joke. Um, yep. So I think eventually what that means is the value proposition of living in a, a rural setting is just going to be so much better because your dollars go further. It's actually going to push people out of cities. That's my, that's my theory over yeah. the next however many years. Um, I mean, maybe that's it's, not that novel, it's definitely true 
It's definitely true for for family people, people who have mm-hmm. families. Um, for singles, I, 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 I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I think the idea is alluring. But our, our experience with, with young people in our firm, right? We, we, you know, we're here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and we recruit people to come back right out of school. And they come back mm-hmm. and like, oh, this is great. Oh, my God, this sucks. It's so boring. There's nothing to do. And so then they go down to Charlotte for the weekend or they fly up to New York and they're like, hell, I, I want to live here. And so then they get a job there and we lose them. Yeah. And, and that's happened for years. And so I do think... You're 100% right that anyone with, a, you know, the flexibility to do what you described, right? I mean, I sat next to people on the, the chairlift who had moved to Colorado, right? We like to ski. So we just moved here. And I, I see it all the time here in North Carolina. We said, well, we picked a map. And we said, it's, it's the halfback state, right? It's not too far south like Florida or, you know, Georgia. It's not, you know, not north in, in the cold. And so we're, we're moving to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um Next door neighbors, right? Came down from Jersey, uh, moved here sight unseen, right? They mm. picked a house and, uh, you know, got in the bidding war and, and bought it. So, but I, I think your, your, your premise is, is right that there is social momentum around this idea of uh, pay me for me, for my merit, as opposed to, you know, me being a static in a in a matrix and because i we, we have it right we have people in new york and we paid them more for the same job as people in north carolina now it's interesting it was always the the again that was demand pull it was it was the people in, in new york demanding higher wages you know to get their to get their labor sure. it was never to your point the people in chapel hill saying well wait a minute, i'm doing the same work so i should get more that's an interesting phenomenon that i think could put pressure upward pressure on wages, which will put downward pressure on prices, which would mean that chart that we saw in the stock market could start to, to be worse. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I think I think you're right, and obviously it's it's too simple to just say this is what's going to happen. As a relative young, I will say, I uh, yeah, I, I I understand that because it, it is nice to be in in the city. Um, I do have a bunch of friends that were my age, uh, and I guess these are the people who are kind of in relationships. But a lot of them moved out west. They were like, look, I uh, you know, I, I I don't want to be in the city anymore. A lot of them moved to Utah. My my family, 
I guess their relative olds, um, sorry, mom and dad, uh, happy birthday, dad. Uh, they moved out to Montana. Um, so I think, I think you're right. It depends. It depends uh, what you value too, right? People yeah. who are outdoorsy, who love to bike and ski and hike. I mean, how Nirvana. I mean, think yeah, living, living in the, you know, near the Utah national parks, being able to go biking and hiking and, and still log on. And it was one of my favorite, it was one of my favorite commercials. It was, it was the guy that was, uh, he had the, the, the pickup truck and he had a, a screen that popped up and it was an office backdrop, like before virtual backdrops. And it, it was a picture of his office and he was doing a zoom, you know, from the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I can see it. I mean, I I loved right being out in Colorado, going out skiing with with the little guy. You know, get up a couple hours early, and you can do a little work. Um, it's good good quality of life. So Yano and I were out in Sedona uh, for the yes. last month. Yes, um, we had and, the crappy uh, background. Yeah, for a couple ex- weeks. exactly. Uh, it was the Chugi background, which is for those yes. of you who aren't familiar with it, that's like live, laugh, love. I'm just going to say public service announcement. If you ever feel the need to decorate your home like that, please, for the love of God, do not. Uh, watch, but, the, watch the uh, the commercial and uh, throw it out. We we met this we met this uh, this couple out there who's doing van life, and they had like out they bought this van, outfitted it, uh, and they'd been yep. driving around in it for a year. Uh, and actually, this guy hadn't even told his employer. <laughs> that he's doing yeah. this yeah. he was just uh he had, he had like one of those you know work backgrounds or whatever yeah. and it just yeah. never even uh, uh came yeah. up i uh, i, I want to get your opinion on on my 11 year old on... is on me to do that he's like dad we should just get an rv and we should just drive i'm like yeah you mm-hmm. would learn more from that year than going to school yeah in, in the current state of schools and that's not that's not criticism of schools it's criticism of the dumb policies that were created around the nonsense. But, but I mean, I feel badly for the teachers and the kids, but I, I actually believe my, my, my 11 year old would do better in a, in an RV traveling around the country uh, than, than what's going on in the current system. But yeah, we'll figure that out. I want to get your thoughts on the ruble. Uh, so the ruble has largely recovered, actually, since that kind yeah. of precipitous drop right at the of beginning course. of the war. Uh, I'm also reading this headline here from Bloom- from Bloomberg. So we, we talked um, about how Russia is going to be demanding its oil exports be settled in rubles as opposed to dollars or like small amount that's settled in euros or whatever it is. King and po- dollar dethroned. King dollar, baby. And uh, here's the headline I'm reading, uh, t- which is Putin says gas exports will be halted if ruble payments are not made. Russia to demand rubles for gas sales from April 1st, which is we are recording this on April 1st. So today. On April 1st. Today. Yeah. So uh, basically yeah. foreign buyers are going to need to. And. and, and I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, he does kind of, I mean, again, not a geopolitical strategist. It looks a little bungled, right? I don't think Russia's coming out of this big weather, uh, the big winner, but he does kind of have the world by the short hairs when it comes to uh, his natural gas, his gas exports. playing chess while we argue about how to set up the checkerboard, right? You know, we, look, <laughs> we're run by octogenarians. The octogenarians are like Notre Dame football fans or Notre Dame basketball fans, right? They remember a past that never was. And that's that's what's going on, is is they live in this petrodollar system, which has been going on since the 70s, and it's over. I mean, yeah. it, we are transitioning away. It's not like a light switch. It doesn't go off like a light switch, but it is over. And the dominance of the dollar is going to fade. And it's China 
and, and Russia secondarily, but it's really China. This is China's plan. China wants to be the world reserve currency, not a. Today they are a world reserve currency. So I, I'm going to voice the devil's advocate opinion here. Uh, and we actually got to get him on the show next week. Jason Buck, uh, host of the yep. uh, Pirates of Finance yep. show. I know you know Jason too. Um, yep. But uh, he kind of voiced this this uh, devil's advocate opinion where actually, you know, there's a lot of folks, uh, you, you and I also, who say this is kind of the right? This is the beginning of the end for the dollar. And uh, to to you know, advocate for Jason's perspective in maybe a less elegant way than he would do himself, which is why we got to get him on the show. Uh, he'd say, oh, he's awesome. I love he's, he's the best. Uh, he'd say, well, well, you know, actually what these sanctions have shown is that as how much the world depends on the dollar, right? And actually how crippling these sanctions yeah. have been for Russia is it's actually kind of a, a show of force. And certainly the Western world is rallying Define behind. Crippling. Define crippling, right? Has it really been crippling? Now, if you're an oligarch, and you illegally had your assets seized, yeah, it's crippling for those mm-hmm. individuals. Bullshit, total bullshit, no, no due process. Because of your, your citizenship, your assets are seized by foreign governments. That is a horrifying world to live in. Horrifying. And so, but, but Russia, right, every single day, the gas goes out the pipelines to Europe and they send money to Russia. And now they have to send not dollars, but rubles. This is big. I mean, this is big, big, big. Today is a really big day. Um, and I don't think people really comprehend that we believe our sanctions did so, so, so great. I say this all the time. If we called sanctions what they are, starving women and children, Right? That's what that's what economic sanctions that the U.S. has done for years. Whether it's Iran, whether it's Venezuela, what was it? If, if you actually look at the impact that it has, it hurts the people that not the people you think it hurts. Right? The oligarchs are fine. Right? You see, their their yacht. They still have money. Right? Putin, he's the richest guy in the world still. Mm. Think about that. He is the richest man in the world, richer than Elon, richer than all of them. And yeah, in theory. Some of his assets went down, but his other assets are now, to your point on the ruble, they're rebounding. And the ruble is going to continue to get stronger uh, because there's going to be increasing demand because every single day people get up in Western Europe. They have no choice. They have zero choices but to buy gas from yeah. Russia. Well, the the other thing, too, that, that Jason mentioned um, is that it's very difficult to predict to call timelines on this sort of thing um you know <laughs> right right 100% and, and agree. that 100 percent agree that's a completely valid point uh so just folks when you're listening to this i i don't think at least i'll speak for myself and mark uh, you can chime in i i don't think yeah. we're calling for the end of this system tomorrow but what i would say is a no. general uh, high level principle is that whenever you do have a monopoly that tends to get abused that that is the beginning of the end for that monopoly because you know there's a whole there's a reason why monopolies are very sticky people don't have alternative choices an enormous amount of power gets amassed look at google uh, or, or some of these social media websites as a more, most recent example but once you do start abusing it it's eventually uh, people say okay this is no longer working for me and another option is found and what i would say too is you, you hear a lot of people say oh it's not going to be sudden yada yada i think it's very difficult to predict timing but actually these these changes do tend to happen very quickly it's like right all of a sudden and then all at once that's no, not yeah, the right yeah, phrase absolutely. but you know it's what i'm talking Hemingway about quote, right how'd, yeah. you, how'd you go bankrupt 
you know, solely at first, then all at once. And <laughs> right. 100%, that's, that's how this works. And, and look, the, the idea that, that any hegemony is permanent is nonsensical. Right? Now, the person who benefits from the hegemony believes that it's permanent. Right? The Romans believed sure. that the Roman Empire would persist. They didn't, they didn't think that overspending and cronyism and, be, and becoming lavish and you know, Nero and the, you know, the beautiful parties and the palaces, they didn't think that that would end. They didn't, th they didn't want that to end. The Ottoman Empire didn't want to end. The colonial British Empire, right? If you were in the 1860s, right, mm -hmm. America was an emerging market run by gangs, right? Watch the movie Gangs in New York. That's what it was like. It was a dangerous place to live in the United States. And the, the center of the universe was London, England. That was the center of the universe. And the sun never set on the British Empire. They did not want the pound sterling to lose world reserve currency status. Mm -hmm. They did not want that. How did it happen? They overspent. They also did something that we now are doing. They invaded Mesopotamia. They incurred a bunch of debt. That debt crippled the economy. And that gave the opportunity for Hitler and others to attack and try to bust up the Western hegemonic rule. And the result was an opening where an upstart young country said, hey, I think we'll be in charge. And that's us. That's us. And here <laughs> we us. are. And we yeah. think it'll never end. But what's happening, the old guys at the top, the Nero's at the top, are cronyizing the world. Mm. All the money's funneling up to the cronies. The average person is getting cr crushed. I mean, mm. I got a really sad email from, from my brother that he was like, dude, I, I went to the store and, and I, I, just, I just can't make ends meet. And I just like, yeah, I, I, I hear that. And, you know, the family will band together and we will help each other. But, but it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I, 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 I went out to breakfast with, with Will yesterday. You know, we had one thing of pancakes and one thing of eggs and bacon. And it was like $60. Yeah. And nah, yeah, it's a ski resort and all that, but still sixty dollars yeah. for breakfast. Yeah. Um one one point about the Roman Empire, just on the point of Jason's uh uh I think correct observation that calling timing on this is really hard. Roman Empire got founded in seven hundred and fifty BC. There were the civil wars, right, which was the transition from yeah. the Republic to the Empire around like twenty eight. That was this wrapped up in like twenty eight BC. And then it was another hundred and almost 50 years before there was the peak, right? So yep. just just saying, it's like very difficult to actually call timing on a lot of the stuff. Um, 100%. The only thing that, that over the last 2,000 years, the one thing that has changed is those epics have shrunk. They've averaged around 70-ish years in the last 300. Sure. Um, and we're kind of up against that from 1944. So again, I'm not calling for it tomorrow. I'm not calling for it tomorrow. And I would love... Just like we do with Brent, right? Brent has this view too. He's like, the dollar is definitely not going to, you know, not not, yeah. not going to lose hegemonic strength. And 
I love these conversations and, and I've had this conversation with Jason multiple times, actually in Aspen, where I just was. Mm. I was in, I was in Snowmass. I don't like Aspen, Aspen. I like Snowmass. Um, <laughs> the poor man's Aspen. Um, but because uh, I like it better. It's just yeah. better. Um, but the interesting thing is we had this conversation at a, a Real Vision Blacklist event and it's a great conversation and it would be fun to have on, yeah. on the show. We'll grab them. You know what is my favorite historical fact just about this before we transition to our last topic is us looking back at ancient Rome now at, at this time period that we're describing right around the turn of turn of the, the millennia or whatever. Uh, that is actually less time than someone living then looking back at ancient Egypt. Isn't that crazy? Oh, is that so nuts? Because like you so, and I, you and I probably so awesome. don't think about that. It's like, oh, yeah, Rome ancient. It's like it's ancient history. Yep. Right. But yep. You know, for someone literally as far back as we think of ancient history, they're looking at the Egyptian pyramids, and that yeah. was uh, the creation of the pyramids was even longer yeah. than uh, Cleopatra. No, look, and, and, well, I, and, 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 I just love I that I fact about history. I think, it's I so think nuts. that's it's one of the greatest facts. Yeah. And what I also love is, I think I said this the other times, you know, uh, there are three sets of pyramids, right? The one mm. that everybody talks about in Egypt. There's another one in Latin America, and there's another one in in China. All three sets have three pyramids that make Orion's belt almost perfectly. If you're looking down from satellite image, and when you look at the three dots, they make Orion's belt. I mean, literally, my mind blow is blown. But the better fact, let alone that aliens must have created those, the other better fact is one ounce of gold over that whole five thousand year period bought a fine person suit from Cleopatra's day. To the Roman Empire, pretty good tech. To today, yeah. one ounce of gold has bought a fine person suit. Right. That is awesome, and that's because gold is money—the only asset that exists in the absence of liability—and it's why I didn't sell my Bitcoin and why you should do that. Yeah. Another thing that I uh, just want to correct because we got a lot of comments on this uh, comments, but I made this comment on silver and I didn't really understand it. Vehicle speculation—you kind of corrected me. I done some research into it. I'm, I didn't understand the industrial uh, use case of silver. I just want to say for all my, my silver lovers on the show, uh, yeah, I was wrong about that. So, uh, yep, I was wrong. That's what you get for speaking uh, at a turn. The on silver, bugs are, silver bugs are, are almost as bad as gold bugs. I mean, bad, good. I don't mean bad. I mean, almost as, as vigilant and... Uh, yeah. I was wrong yeah. about it. I just didn't understand it. And that's what you get for, for talking up. All right. Now, I want to, we're talking about big things, turn of century, big you know, changes in systems. You know, this nonsense of people checking what we actually say. I mean, when, when did that happen? <laughs> it's ridiculous. No, no. It's ridiculous. I mean, come on. Ridiculous. Who could be held to those sorts of standards? <laughs> right, come on. Uh, all right. This, there was a really interesting note. Um, for those of you who are into issues around financial plumbing, you might know a guy named Zoltan Posar. Uh, so he's oh. at Credit Suisse. He's a great analyst. Um, came out with this note. Money, Commodities, and Bretton Woods 3. So you're going to have to bear with me here. I'm just going to read the opening couple of paragraphs of this note. It is really, really good. I highly recommend that uh, folks find this and read it. Credit Suisse Research has always prided itself on thought leadership. In today's environment, where we have to navigate a global conflict between great powers and an unfolding crisis of commodities, thought leadership is more important than ever. The current environment is perhaps more complex than the crises of 1997, 2008, or 2020, for the problem is not only nominal, parentheses, FX pegs, par, or the great overdraft, respectively, but also real. Commodities are real resources, food, energies, metals. 
The resource inequality cannot be addressed by QE because you can't print money, or you can print money, but not oil to heat or wheat to eat. Wars also upend the dominance of currencies and serve as a doula, don't know that word, to the birth of new monetary systems. What Deutsche Bank's Bretton Woods II framework was to the first decade of the new century and what QE and Basel III then were to the second, post-GFC, decade of the new century, we believe that our Bretton Woods III framework will be to the third decade of the new century and potentially beyond. If we're right, our framework will be the right framework to think about how to trade interest rates in coming years. Inflation will be higher. The level of rates will be higher too. Demand for commodity reserves will be higher, which will naturally replace demand for FX reserves, treasuries, and other G7 claims. Demand for dollars will be lower too, as more trade will be done in other currencies. And structurally then, the negative cross-currency basis, aka the dollar premium, will naturally fade away and potentially become a positive cross-currency basis. A lot of words there, a lot of words, but I mean, it's fascinating to hear some of this come out of Zoltan's back. And for those of you who know Zoltan, this is a guy who deeply understands financial plumbing. He's very smart. He does not speak off the cuff. Um, no, it's awesome. And by the way, Dula is a person trained to provide advice, information, emotional support, and physical comfort to a mother before, during, and just after childbirth. No kidding. Um, so basically, as things change. Mm. And and look, he's so right. Um, and he's great. I mean, as, as an analyst and, and as a writer... Um, and so I loved, I loved hearing you, you read, it's like Shakespeare, it's like prose. Um, but the, the issue here is exactly what he said. You can't print commodities. And, and that's why the commodity prices appear to be spiking. It's not that they are spiking. It's that the currency we price them in is just plummeting. I mean, it's plummeting. And this is this whole idea about the strong dollar. The dollar's strong. No, it's not. If it costs you twice as much to buy a barrel of oil or to buy a, a, a bushel of wheat, it, it doesn't, the, the wheat didn't get better, right? The wheat is not more enriched. It's, the oil burns the same amount of BTUs. It ain't better. It's that the currency is getting destroyed. And that inequality goes to the average person so much more than the rich. And again, I will argue that this is the dictator playbook 101. Mm. This is what dictators do. They impoverish the masses to make them dependent, and then they give them handouts to buy their votes yeah. to stay in power. And that is what's happening in the United States, and it's frightening. It is absolutely horrifying to think of people calling for UBI and calling for handouts. I know you have a different view on UBI, which I respect, but but this this nonsense of give me free money to to to, to make up for like Gavin Newsom. Here's four hundred dollars for increased gas prices. Now he does it exactly the wrong way. He does it based not on income, but based on car registration. So the dude who has multiple cars gets more money, although they did cap it that, too. So. That's why it's all... Uh, for, uh, so I, I actually, I'm not a believer in UBI uh, in, in any sense uh, whatsoever. I, I, I don't oh, think okay. I, I don't think that, you can give right. someone something for free and have them value it. I think that actually weirdly goes with, um, even though I, if I was a single issue voter, it'd be on education. I still don't actually believe in free education. That's tough. It's hard. I think it's a hard balance. Just if you've ever had experience trying to give someone something for free and then have them value that thing, 
it's more difficult than you think. Um, well, it's crazy. Yeah. Think about it. It you get what you pay for. Yeah, you get what you pay for. People don't value. Okay, just look at a rental car. Get in a rental car that's been rented a bunch of times. Yeah. And then get in somebody's new car, and see the difference. When you own something, you take care of it. Yeah. Right. The whole VRBO thing. Yeah. People don't respect what's not theirs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this too. I think it's a, I think it's criminal how expensive college is in the U S but I actually used to work for this firm that was headquartered out of Sweden and they have some kind of like semi-free education system. They were like, look, there are actually drawbacks to that too. Like nobody takes college as seriously as you guys do. That's funny because like a lot of people party a lot in college, but, uh, that was their perspective. It was just interesting to hear, but I do want to get your perspective. Like a couple of things stick out to me here. Right. So we're talking about demand for commodity reserves, persistently higher inflation, Persistently higher rates as well, which is actually pretty interesting, and lower demand for dollars in general. And this is kind of fitting into this narrative that I've been hearing a lot of like a multipolar world, right? So, you know, it's been a unipolar world all based around the United States as the sole superpower in the world. And now maybe it's China, maybe it's some sort of coalition of China, Russia, you know, other uh, powerful Eastern countries, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, we're starting to see kind of a reorganization geopolitically uh, based on supply chain, based on ideology, etc., and uh, I mean, one thing that makes sense to me, even just how supp- our supply chains work, I think COVID did shine a light on like, Jesus yes. Christ, how fragile are our supply chains? I mean, this is nuts. And if you start having... I don't even like to, I don't even like to think about it. Yeah, it's right? crazy. I think overall, I mean, what the what's interesting to me about Zoltan's thing, and this is, again, just the intro, he goes into, he's got some really interesting, um, you know, analysis on the price of money, so this Perry... Uh, Merling uh, framework, but you know, overall, what, what you're describing, what he's describing there, in persistently higher inflation, higher rates, demand for commodities, less demand for FX reserves. I mean, what you're describing is a complete unwinding of the monetary system as it's existed thus far, uh, and and one that's more based on commodities. I, the in the the last story that I want to get your your take on here because I think it's so freaking interesting um, is what's actually going on in crypto with uh, Luna and Terra, right? So for those of you, I mean, Jason's episode uh, podcast has done a bunch of episodes on this, but they just had Do Kwan on actually, who's the founder of uh, Terra Luna uh, and the UST stablecoin. But I mean, what they're, so for those of you who might not be aware of uh, Terra Luna, that it's a, it's a, um, it's built on SDK. Uh, It's basically, it's an ecosystem that exists to create a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin called UST. There are also other. It's UST is the main product, but there are other. Um, there are other stables as well, um, and uh, it's it's been collateralized uh, primarily by Luna. Um, but also, what they're starting to do now is collateralize it with other assets, primarily Bitcoin. And there's something called the LFG, the Luna Foundation Guard, and they have raised a. They've essentially committed to a $10 billion Bitcoin buy. Um, they've already bought, I think, 1.3 billion uh, as of this time. And it's great. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, I don't understand why this isn't getting more attention or this isn't yeah. more of a mainstream story. This yeah. is like the biggest Bitcoin <laughs> buying spree uh, ever. And I also think it's just interesting because it's a really bold experiment in something that looks like a, you know, a native currency for the internet, a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin, and it's collateralized with Bitcoin, which is the internet's version of pristine collateral gold. And it actually looks something like, the Bretton Woods system. Can everyone, can everyone please rewind 30 seconds and listen 
to the most elegant description of what is happening <laughs> and why collateral matters that Michael just said. Please rewind 30 seconds and listen to his description of how and why. No, I, I'm, I'm deadly serious. That explanation was the clearest, most concise, and it's all about the collateral. Mm -hmm. It's always all about the collateral. Yeah. And this idea that the dollar has been and still is-ish the pristine collateral. Treasuries were pristine collateral. Now, Bitcoin may become the pristine collateral. And right, we all know the saying, he who has the gold makes the rules. Maybe in the future, he who has the Bitcoin makes the rules. Yeah. And so please go back and listen to what Michael just said, because that if you if you understand that one concept, you have a huge head start over 99% of people out there. I think the implications here as well, one trend that I've just noticed in crypto in the time that I've been here, right? There's this idea, the wall of money is coming, the institutions are coming, the big opportunity if you're building a company in crypto, or if you're buying an asset because you're trying to front run the institutions, whatever, just front run this wall of money, just wait, it's going to come in. And four years later, I actually think the opportunity is in doing crypto native things like fade the institutions, fade the banks and actually pay attention to the people who are doing the most native, interesting stuff. And I wonder, like, for instance, two thumbs way up. like, let me give you an example. Like, OK, the Internet was in the, you know, the early 2000s. Right. Did 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 Walmart like successfully co-opt the Internet and develop some great Internet strategy or was there a native internet on to online retailer did Amazon Microsoft, that just right? ate everyone's did the Microsoft lunch intranet did right the Microsoft intranet that Bill Gates was on David Letterman's show saying no no you don't want this internet thing you want you want our intranet yeah our person no 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 you wanted the decentralized not perfectly decentralized but you wanted the broader internet and and again rewind 30 seconds Listen to Mike. This is the listen to Michael's episode. This is awesome. I just I'll conclude my point by saying I I actually find it as crazy as this prediction might sound. I find it more likely that instead of central banks buying Bitcoin, I find it more likely that crypto will create its own version of something that looks like central banks, and the world will find a way to integrate them. I I think that is more likely at this point than central banks buying. Um, I think central banks will probably buy gold. But I think, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Central banks will buy Bitcoin. They will. Mm. Uh, be because they'll be forced to because of what you described. Mm. That this pull by the crypto native businesses moves us into the digital age. Mm. The legacy system, which will still exist. Everyone's like, oh, if you hate the dollar so much, why don't you just move? I agree. I think it'll still exist. Yeah. i like, dude, I, I'm, I'm going to live here for now. Although... You know, government policies are, are, are making it harder and harder. But for now, and because I live here, I got to spend in fiat. And so, yes, I have a portion of my wealth in Bitcoin and in other digital assets. Absolutely. That is my schmuck insurance. But I have to convert. Well, actually, I don't convert at all. I just use my fiat income to pay my fiat bills. I don't need to convert yet. Um, thankfully, because inflation's not you know a thousand percent, which they're working on. Um, but but look, I I I love the Doquan story. Um, so I, I almost said at the beginning in my April Fool's joke that I was the guy selling 
to Doquan. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't, I didn't, didn't want to go there. I just but, am attracted um, to people making big, bold bets. I love them. I just think it's, uh, I just think they're fascinating. It's how the, it's how the whole world, I mean, you're a student of history. Mm-hmm. It's how the world is created. Yeah. I just, you can't cross a chasm in two small jumps. Yeah. No, I just think it's, you can't. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. Evil Knievel showed us that. And people are like, who the hell is Evil Knievel? Look it up and look at the Snake River Canyon. He didn't quite make it. Yeah. So we shall see. Uh, but uh, anyway, Mark, this has been a ton of fun as always. Uh, you know, I, and the thing I love about today, it felt like two or three hours. Yeah, this, this was, was a good a, one. It's such a good conversation and just felt longer. Um, but uh, again, best hour of my week. Uh, I appreciate it so much and uh, have a great weekend. Cheers, my friend. I'll talk to you soon.